Please allow me to add my warm welcome to those that have already been offered to you this, uh, this morning as we've gathered here. I uh, pray, pray that uh, God will really bless you by being here today as we open up God's Word together. We want to also extend a warm welcome to those who are worshiping with us at home. Uh, again, we are just so grateful for the opportunity each week to open up God's Word together. As Isaac just mentioned, uh, my name is Milt Johnson, and I have the great joy of serving as one of the pastors here at Chantilly Bible Church. And we are continuing in a sermon uh, series that we began earlier this summer. It's uh, entitled Faithful, Standing on the Promises of God. And today we're going to be looking in the book of Jonah, chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love to invite you to turn with me to them, uh, to in them, to uh, chapter 2. Um, You'll find the book of uh, Jonah, by the way, uh, between Obadiah and Micah. And you say, well, that's a big help, Milt. Well, let me add a little more information. Just a, a few books prior to the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first uh, of the New Testament books. As you are uh, turning there, allow me to note that one of the big problems, I think, for believers who are studying the book of Jonah is we get so fixated, so focused on the big fish, mentioned uh, only, by the way, four times in the entire book, and on Jonah, who was a disobedient prophet, uh, who God used in spite of his disobedience, that we often, I think, miss the overall theme or emphasis of the book. In reality, the book of, uh, of Jonah is the story of God's work in an ungodly prophet, but I'd say it goes even further than that, because it also includes the story of God's love and work in an ungodly nation. And make no mistake about it, as we enter into our study today of the book of Jonah chapter 2, that it is indeed God who is the central character and hero of our narrative today. In fact, I would, uh, I would say there is no other Old Testament book in which the heart of God, his missionary, missionary heart, is expressed so clearly that he, I, I would think that the Jewish readers at the time reading this book would have been stunned by God's heart for, for lost people outside of the Jewish faith. And God sending uh, this prophet, this, uh, this missionary, Jonah, to the Ninevites, as we'll see, is a very clear, I think, and exciting demonstration of God's heart for all people, for all Jew or Gentile alike. Now, I derive today's promise from chapter 2. If you turn there, I want to look with you at verses uh, 2 and 3. We find here Jonah is in the belly of a big fish, and here's what he prays. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All the waves in your billows passed over me. Now to help establish what's going on here, and to set the context here, I'd like to offer a few, as I often do, a few opening questions to kind of get us into the right track of mind here. Here's the first question. Let me ask, have you ever tried to run or hide or to avoid God because you feared that he might ask you a question you cannot answer or you really don't want to answer it anyway? Are, 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 what if he's asking you to do something that you're unwilling or afraid to do? Have you ever avoided God because of that? Have you ever tried to run or hide or avoid God because you know in your heart he's asking you to give up some precious possession or habit 
our relationship that is not in alignment with the heart of God. Have you ever tried running or hiding and avoiding God that it led to you to make a silly compromise or a foolish, sinful choice that has gotten you into a big mess that you thought, man, I'm never, it's impossible for me to get out of this mess. Or you felt so ashamed that you thought, man, God could never forgive me or, or, or get me out of this mess. Now, the reason I raise these questions with you this morning is because today, as we study the life and the ministry of this Old Testament prophet, he, let me tell you, he's a man who's really messed up. By trying to run or hide or to avoid the will of God, we find Jonah here in chapter 2 in this huge quagmire of sinful mess that I have to believe in my heart that he likely was thinking, this is impossible for anyone to get me out of. Here's a short version of the steps that happened, the events that happened in Jonah's life prior to what we just heard prayed in chapter 2. Jonah is a prophet in Israel during the king's reign, uh, the reign of King Jeroboam II. That's around, if you're curious, 786 to 746 BC. Jeroboam II was northern kingdom of Israel's most powerful king during that time. During his reign, the borders of the nation of Israel extended and grew and expanded to the greatest extent with the exception of the time under King David and Solomon. Here's the problem. Assyria was about 550 miles east of the northern kingdom of Israel at this time, and they were a constant threat to the people of Israel's prosperity and peace. And therefore, there wasn't, I would think, an Israelite alive at that time who wouldn't love to see, long for, the destruction of Assyria. Thus, one can scarcely imagine the alarm bells that went off in the prophet Jonah's heart and mind when we see in chapter 1, verse 2, here's what God came and commanded him to do. He says, Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, which, by the way, is the flourishing uh, capital of this Assyrian Empire, and I want you to call out against them. Their evil has come up before me. Well, Jonah's response, if I, I, if I were to put it in the vernacular, because he does it mostly by his action, no way, God. There is no way I'm going to do this. And we learn later in chapter 4, verse 2, why he felt so strongly about this is because Jonah was aware that Jehovah, the God that he served, worshipped, and, 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 and spoke about, was a glorious and merciful God, a slow to anger God, abundant in loving kindness. And hence, he was sure that if the inhabitants of this great and wicked city, his mortal enemies were, were to respond to the message that God had for him to bring, then God would spare them. And Jonah wanted nothing whatsoever to do with that. Better, he must have thought, that Nineveh would be destroyed rather than uh, the Assyrians live and attack the people of Israel. Folks, the bottom line is this. Jonah did not believe that God had his and his people's best interest in mind. And so he fled in the opposite direction. He fled to Joppa, and there he boarded a ship that was heading to Tarshish, a Phoenician colony on the southwest coast of Spain, some 2,500 miles to the west of where God was directing him. 
The express purpose, amazingly, according to Jonah 1 verse 3, if you look there, was Jonah was looking to flee, as if he could, from the presence of Almighty God. And so the story of Jonah is a story about a man who foolishly disobeyed God and who tried to run and hide from him. When the word of God came to him, sadly, he, and he thought he could take it or leave it. And that disobedience was not an option. And that's what makes Jonah's story, in my impression, in my heart, our story. Because I believe there are points in all of our lives, maybe in some today, where we either overtly or covertly try to run and hide from God because we want to resist or avoid his will. Think about it. How often do we resist God's will in terms of our relationships or in terms of our finances, our service to the Lord, our, our sexuality, our entertainment, or the use of our time, our talents, and our research. And I could go on and on and give you more examples, but I think you know what I'm talking about. And maybe there are some here today, sitting here, who actually are in a period of time who are like Jonah. They are literally resisting God's will entirely. To borrow a phrase from the football world, they are stiff-arming God. Truth be told, that uh, like Jonah, I fear that many of us today do not believe when it comes down to it, especially when we want to disobey God, we don't believe God's interest or has our best interest in mind. And that we often find ourselves guilty of running from God's will because of that. We put our own plans and priority over God's plans. Thankfully, and that's the whole message today, God never gives up on his own. He never grows tired, his kindness is immeasurable, and his patience is astonishing. Now see what I mean? Let's look at our text and notice here that we find that initially Jonah must have thought, oh man, I'm clear, I'm, uh, nothing's, nothing could work any better, everything's gone smoothly as he runs away from God. In fact, according to 1 verse 5, we find that in his disobedience, the prophet, he climbs down into the bottom of the boat, and there he falls fast asleep. But God was about to show him, and I would say to all of us, show all of us, that we may run from God, but we can't outrun him. We may run from him, but we can't outrun him. Interestingly, I thought about this as I, I got to this point. Well, why didn't God just pick someone else? Why didn't he pick someone or call someone who would faithfully go to Nineveh without argument, someone who had more compassion, had more mercy toward others? But I believe God used Jonah because Jonah needed God's rescue. Not just as we'll see from drowning here, but also because he needed to be rescued from his hard heart and prideful heart, as many of us do. And the promise today that I see being demonstrated in God's reaction in response to Jonah's disobedience is this. God never gives up on his own. God never gives up on his own. In fact, we're going to see here in this narrative that in his love, he will go to the greatest lengths to rescue his own from himself. And that's just what he did here in Jonah's life. Looking back at verse 1 or verse 4 of chapter 1, we find this surely after the boat left, and we kind of know this story, but uh, it, a very fierce storm hits. And uh, according to 1 verse 5, it must have been one whale of a storm. Hey, I didn't mean to do that. One big storm. Um, in Jonah chapter 1 verse 5, it says, Every man was crying out to their God for help. 
and they started to throw over precious cargo overboard in hopes that it might lighten the ship and that they might save their ship from being broken up and sunk. And guess where they found Jonah? He was still sound asleep in the boat, and the captain rebukes Jonah. He says, how can you be asleep at this time? Get up and pray to your God. Maybe he can help us. The sailors knew something was up here. This was no ordinary storm. They knew that by the way the storm approached, that there was something incredible, the ferocity of the winds and the waves. This was not just a bad turn in the weather. And so to determine the cause, as often happened in this pagan culture, uh, of this strange event, they, it says they cast lots, which is they, they kind of drew straws. And guess who the culprit was? None other than our prophet here, Jonah. And they start crying to him, what have you done? What God do you believe in? Hey, why don't you call out to him and see what we can do to make this storm stop? And Jonah's response is in verse 9 of chapter 1. Look at what he says here. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. Now, let me tell you, Jonah's answer did not bring a lot of comfort to his shipmates. These pagan sailors were terrified as they learned that this prophet had run away from God, the one who created earth and sea. Jonah's reaction to them is, well, here, do this. Chapter 1, verse 12. He said to them, pick me up, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down. Listen to this. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. There was no doubts in Jonah's mind. Now, please do not make the mistake, as many do, that this is a courageous Jonah speaking, or that he's a real martyr here. In my opinion, it is more likely that Jonah offered to throw, have been thrown off the ship because he would rather die than obey God in taking the good news that God wanted him to take to the Ninevites. At first, believing God's, uh, Jonah's God to be this amazing God, being real, and dreading the consequences of uh, throwing even this disobedient Jonah overboard. The sailors, man, they were frightened. And they did their best to row and row and row. But this storm was so intense and so fierce that eventually seeing the hopelessness of that cause, they ended up throwing themselves on the mercy of God, and then they picked up Jonah and threw him into the raging sea. And when they did, according to 1 verse 15, just as Jonah thought, the storm immediately ceased. Utterly astonished, it says in Scripture, the sudden calm. These pagan sailors began immediately offering uh, praise and sacrifice to the Lord. And, and, and they were fearing him so much that it says that they made promises to continue to praise him. Can you imagine that? Miraculously, we see here, this is our great God, guys. This miraculous way we see God work through Jonah, even though he was running and disobedient from God's will, he, God demonstrates that even in our failures, that's how big our God, even in our failures, God can use it for good. Now, no one really knows what Jonah was thinking as he slid underneath the sea. Whatever he was thinking, I doubt very much he, he would include in that thought that God had prepared this custom-made designed great fish to move in his direction and rescue him. Look at verse 17, and look what it says. And God, look at that, this is an important word, appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And I would submit to you that this fierce storm, along with Jonah having this meticulous timing of God with this great fish, is yet another example that God never lets 
or gives up on his own. In fact, in his love, as I've said over and over again, he, and this is an amazing demonstration, will go to the greatest lengths to rescue us when we slip away. Yes, Jonah was disobedient, a disobedient prophet, but God was not finished with him yet. Now, I think you'd agree with me at this point in our narrative, Jonah's in a big mess. He's got himself into a big pickle here, one that there's no way that he can get himself out of. I want you to try to imagine what it must have been like for the experience of Jonah in the belly of the whale three days and three nights. I've got to admit to you, growing up, when I heard this story, I immediately imagined that it was just like Geppetto and Pinocchio in the belly of the great fish, you know, all cozy, warm with candles. And, uh, but to my credit, I used to think that Y.E. Coyote could just jump off the rock right before it hit a rock, too, or hit the ground. Uh, so, but I want you to try to imagine, I want to paint the picture here of what Jonah was likely going through. Here's some thoughts. First, Jonah was in the stomach of a living sea creature that would have meant water everywhere. Three days. Imagine being in that condition. Second, it would have mean that it was damp and that it was dark. Third, it must have stunk the high heavens. Can you imagine that? And if there was ever a place for an airwick uh, smelly thing or whatever, this was it, okay? And then fourth, most serious, I think, in the stomach of this great fish would have been hydrochloric acid. And we know that that would have burnt his skin and likely it would have whitewashed all the color out of his hair, out of, uh, out of his clothing, and out of his flesh. So let me assure you here that the situation we have here, that being in the belly of this great fish was not a happy place to dwell. But let me also assure you here that while the belly of a fish is not a happy place to dwell, it is a great place to learn. And Jonah is going to learn. Now many people, including many Christians, find the account of Jonah to be a tough story, and I do mean this to swallow, okay? Um, but let me pause here and ask, knowing what we know about God uh, and all that we've seen in the way God has provi provided here, couldn't our God prepare a great fish to have it swimming in the vicinity of this floundering ship, scoop up Jonah in the raging sea and preserve life, transport and vomit him on the land? Uh, absolutely he could. Many Christian liberals will say, well, um, in order to avoid the problem here, will say, well, this was never meant to be an actual story. It's just an allegory. However, when I study scriptures, I find that the writers, when they use allegories or parables or symbolic stories, they always either say it or the context is so clear. The thing that most convinces me that this is an actual historical event is in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus himself pointing to the three days in the belly of the great fish. Jesus points from the old, that this was an Old Testament event pointing forward to his resurrection. Remember what he said? For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Well, going back to our text here, as the time we have remaining, I want to see with you the steps that God led Jonah to be forgiven and restored to a proper place of service for him. And looking at the example of this prayer and God's response for getting out of this jam and turning back to God, the first thing I see in this text is that we need to humbly acknowledge his need for, he needed to acknowledge his need for, for God's deliverance. Look at Verses 1 and 2 again of chapter 2. 
Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out, of the, out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried, and notice, you heard my voice. Now again, to this point in the narrative, Jonah has been going in only one direction, the wrong one. He was going down. In fact, we've seen him uh, from the very hour of his rebellion against God, God's plan here going in that direction. He went down to Joppa, right? He went down to the Mediterranean Sea, and now we find him in the belly, down in the belly of the whale. Or I'm not supposed to say whale, sorry. I've been practicing great fish, okay, and the great fish. And, and, and he obviously considers himself as good as dead when you read the text. And then Jonah, it says in verse 1, pray to the Lord his God, humbly acknowledging his need for God's deliverance. And don't miss this, please. God answered Jonah. God heard his voice. I want you to see here, I think this shows us that we are never brothers and sisters in Christ, so far down that God will not hear our earnest plea to him. Practically speaking, that means that regardless of how far we stray or how far we've run from God, regardless, God, when we come to him and offer our, our, our need uh, to, to be delivered here, God promises, I see in this text, to bless us and restore us. That's powerful to me. Again, I would say to you that I think that shows very clearly that we may fail God. We may give up on God. But hear me well, God never gives up on us. That's awesome, isn't it? So let me just stop here. We've been talking a lot here, presenting a lot of facts. And let me ask you, brothers and sisters in Christ, is there any sense today in which you are running from God? No matter how far we run from God, Jonah shows us here, when we reach a, a point of humbly confessing our need and turn back to God, there is always forgiveness and always restoration. In which ways are you running from God? Looking back at our text, second, a step to getting back, out of this, getting back to God, getting out of this jam, is we need to approach God's correction or discipline rightly. Look at verses 3 through 6. Here's how Jonah's praying. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. This is such incredible, vivid writing. All of your waves, your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapping around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down into the land whose bars were closed upon me forever, yet, yet you brought me up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. This is a description of that plunge that appeared to the prophet, uh, that plunge into a watery grave. Pretty hopeless. But notice, according to verse 3, how Jonah acknowledges that it wasn't the sailors who cast him into the sea. It was God. When Jonah said these words, I believe he was not only taking ownership of his actions and decisions, he was admitting that it was God who was disciplining him and that he deserved it. Now that being noted, when it comes to godly discipline for God's children, 
how we respond determines the benefits that we receive from it. Let me point you to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 5 through 8. In the New Testament, here is what the writer says to us. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when we are reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. Now let me make two important practical observations from the writer of the Hebrews here. First, I want you to see, please don't miss this, that all of God's children are subject to his discipline. In fact, such discipline, according to the writer to the Hebrews, is a proof of God's divine love for us and an evidence of our sonship. The bottom line is this, if God didn't care about us, he would just leave us to our bad habits and on those pathways of destruction. But because of his great love for us, God wants our best. He wants us to grow. He wants us to be spiritually healthy, holy, and experiencing godly fruit. He wants us to be matured. He wants to refine us. He wants to develop us into the calling he has placed over each one of our lives. And all these things, as you know, requires discipline. The second thing that I observe in this text is that when it comes to accepting God's discipline, there are several options as to how we might accept that correction. And only one right one, okay? We can regard it lightly, as the writer to the Hebrews says, uh, lightly and question it. We, we can become weary because of it. We can resist it and bring on even more uh, stronger discipline. But I would submit to you that we must rightly submit to it and we want to learn from it. That's God's purpose for it. It is important that we develop that kind of an attitude and that kind of a response, because if you look at verse 11, it says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later, listen to this, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so to summarize here, God's discipline, I don't believe, is punishment the death of Jesus Christ for believers, you see, has paid the penalty for the totality of all our sin for everyone who has put their trust in him. God's discipline is rather a correction for wayward believers that is motivated by his great love for us. I love what one of my professors used to say in seminary. Here's what he said. God is generous in his grace and thorough in his discipline. Listen, don't, don't miss this. Not to pay us back, but to bring us back. God wants us in a right, healthy, and growing relationship with him, and he will go to great lengths to get us there. And I believe this correction in our lives is yet another way that God shows us that he will never let go of his own. Again, I pause. Dear brother or sisters in Christ, are you running? Are you hiding? Are you avoiding God today? Are you resisting the correction that God wants to do in your life to bring you to a healthy relationship with him? The third step, as I look at our text, is that we need to admit our sin to God and turn to him in obedience, our repentance. Look at verses 7, 8, and 9. When my life was slipping away, I remembered God. And my prayer got through to you, made it all the way. 
keep in mind where, where he's calling God from. Made it all the way to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to the vain idols, declares Jonah, forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation, says Jonah, belongs to the Lord. As I look at verse 8 in particular here, I see a twofold message being presented here. First, Jonah, I think, is stating a general principle. He's reminding us, he's warning us of putting our trust in idols. It's worthless. It robs us of experiencing God's blessing and God's love. But I would submit to you today that second, Jonah is presenting to us a profound summary of what we've studied in his life up to this point. It was, it's the prophet confessing that he's gotten his eyes off God, that he's gotten his eyes off the value of people that his God holds. And he's gotten his eyes off the joy of submitting to Jehovah, the God of heaven and earth. And where has his focus been during this whole time? Hasn't it been on his way and his plans and his agenda and his comfort and his will and I would add his hatred and intense racism? And submitting to God that these things have become vain idols in his life. He confesses that that led him foolishly to run from God and distance himself from the love of God. Not, mind you, God's love for him, but the opportunity, don't miss this, to experience God's love and blessing in his life. At this point, in utter brokenness, Jonah sees the error of his ways, the emptiness and the folly of, of trying to run from the Lord. And he surrenders his will and gives praise to God. He also makes a recommitment, it says here, to pay back the vow that he made to God, which I assume means his promise to be the Lord's prophet, to obey his word, to go where he wants him to go, to speak what he wants them to say, including going to Nineveh. And then Jonah utters what I believe the most profound point, the most important point of this prayer, salvation is of the Lord. Literally belongs, belongs to the Lord. This is where God wants every one of us as his children to be brought to. We just sang a moment ago, my hope is only Jesus. It's a declaration that salvation belongs, deliverance belongs to God. It's a place of surrender. Jonah is going to stop fighting with the Lord. He's going to stop running and he's going to stop blocking his ears from hearing what God would have him to do. And that, folks, is the fourth and final step, I believe, in our text, to bringing ourselves back into a proper restoration with God. We must accept the salvation of the Lord. Literally, again, the salvation that belongs to the Lord. That is not only the central declaration of this entire book, but the central declaration of the entire book of Scripture, the central theme of the Bible, starting in Genesis and going all the way to Revelation. Scripture is clear. We can't put our trust in anything but the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ. That's where it's got to start, and if we miss that, we miss everything. But I hope that you can also see, demonstrated in our narrative here of, of Jonah, it's not just a story about God disciplining a disobedient prophet and Jonah in this big fish. It's a story of Jonah and a story that shows God's steadfast love, his mercy to his prophet. And he shows us that he will never, hear me well, give up 
on his own. Again, are, are you, dear brother or sister in Christ, running from God today? I came across a poem that I found written by a Christian named Josh Mudge. He was writing this poem to another Christian who was struggling with addiction and was really questioning whether God cared or God could ever forgive him. And it's just powerful. I want to leave you with this. Listen to what he wrote. No matter how far you run, no matter how hard you try to hide, when you call, you find, you will find him right by your side where he always was. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this uh, powerful demonstration of the fact that you never give up on your own. Thank you as we see the great links that you go, Lord, to restore Jonah to a proper fellowship and service for you. I pray if there's anyone here, first of all, who's never come to the realization that they need to trust in Jesus as their Savior, you'll help them, Lord, to see that need today and place their trust in him. For those of us who already know you, Lord, I pray that you will help us to see any areas in our lives where you're running or hiding or avoiding or resisting you, Lord. Help us to be able, as Jonah did here in this text, to be able to surrender our wills and our trust to you, for salvation truly belongs to the Lord. As we pray this in Christ's name, amen.